welcome back to another episode of Potative Podcast Listeners. I'm your host, Jessica. And I'm Michael Mahaney. And we're really excited today to bring on Sean Dorsey, who just finished a run at APAP in January. Yeah. So Sean Dorsey is an award-winning San Francisco-based choreographer, dancer, and writer, recognized as the United States' first acclaimed transgender modern dance choreographer. And he's toured all over the United States into 30 cities. Dorsey has been awarded five Isadora Duncan Dance Awards and the Goldie Award for performance. He has been named in Dance Magazine's 25 to Watch and named San Francisco's Best Dance Company by San Francisco Weekly. And most recently, Dorsey was awarded a Dance USA Artist Fellowship. Dorsey's works are powerful explorations of human experience. They're highly physical, accessible, rooted in story, danced with precision, guts, and, and so much deep humanity. Dorsey's been awarded major support by the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Dance Project, Dance USA, and many, many, many other dance sources, as well as a variety of commissions from sources including American Dance Festival, Bates Dance Festival, the Queer Cultural Center in San Francisco, Seven Stages in Atlanta, and so many more. Dorsey's newest work, Boys in Trouble, is a powerful evening of dances that unpack masculinity with an unflinching honesty from an unapologetically trans and queer perspective. That's quite the quite the bio. It is. Welcome Congratulations. to the show. Congratulations. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So we always start at the beginning with our guests. Tell us how you got into dance. So like many dancers and choreographers, I love dance with every fiber of my being. From the youngest age, I was always dancing around my living room. And unlike many choreographers and dancers, I'm transgender. And so as a young person, I didn't see a single person like me in dance. From a young age, I was really drawn to modern dance and contemporary dance. But I didn't see a single dancer or choreographer or creator like me. So I was literally constantly moving, but I didn't grow up doing a lot of formal dance training because in a very deep place on my unconscious, it was like, oh, this is my, this is my personal love. This is going to be my hobby that I couldn't, of course, do that with my, my life. This can't be my career. This is not my life path. So I grew up doing a ton of theater and music and mostly dancing around my living room in my pink leotard to my (laughs) fame and rock 81 vinyl albums and really just took a few classes here and there throughout my youth, but performing and creating a lot, but mostly in theater and music. And it wasn't until I was in undergrad and then graduate school that I started taking more community level classes, started taking ballet, and I was literally like, what is a tondu? (laughs) I was that person. And in that first series of ballet classes I took, my teacher asked me to stay after class one day And she said, you know, you are a gorgeous dancer. Have you thought about... Or she said, actually, I think you have what it takes to become a professional. Have you ever thought about this? And I was like, my mind just exploded because, of course, I had not thought about that. I hadn't seen a single example of myself mirrored in the world that suggested that was possible. So that was the beginning for me, to let myself imagine that it could be possible. At the same time, so much of my heart and identity was really wrapped up in just wanting to be a service. I was really drawn to social justice work and wanting to be of service in the world. And I also hadn't seen a lot of examples of how dance would be that. So again, of course, dance couldn't be how I could be of service in the world and connect to community. 
So then, you know, the journey continued and all of those things became true. I did decide to audition for some dance programs. I got into all the ones I auditioned for, which also shocked me. (laughs) And in my school, I began, you know, creating work, which from the beginning, like all my work now was highly physical, but also rooted in story and language. I'm a writer and a poet. And so that was there in my work from the beginning And the first little student recital we had, the dance community came out to support all us young students making our first little baby piece of work. And I got so much love and appreciation from all these folks who mostly weren't LGBTQ. And my piece was really clearly a queer duet. And the next day, the director of my school called me out of class into her office and sat me down and said, your piece last night made people feel very uncomfortable which it hadn't, I had gotten beautiful feedback. And so, again, I filed that away being like, hmm, this is a way I can be making impact in the world. So those were a couple of formative parts of my my journey. I really love that your initial reaction was, oh, wow, I can make good impact rather than <laughs> I'm so sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I had the wherewithal to just know that wasn't true. And again, this was so early in my craft, but I thought, no, people told me that I had something to say and that I was... I was onto something choreographically, even as a young creator. So, but you talk about social justice being something that's so important to you. One of the things that we've been talking to a lot with guests recently is this idea of combining social justice and dance. So, how do you think personally the work that you've been doing in your professional career bring those sort of two ideas together? And how do you think dance can be used as a as a tool for, for social change? Thank you, I love this question. I love that you've been having these conversations. So I wanna say a couple of things. One is I want to start off by rejecting the idea that we all, I do this, we all do this in the dance field, of kind of, that there's a separation between dance that forwards social justice and dance that we consider not to forward social justice, to be abstract or whatever it is called. I would argue that all dance has a message and deeply impacts the audience. All dance sends a very, very, very strong message. Now, a lot of that is unconscious. So for example, when we go and see, you know, large acclaimed esteemed national dance companies, unconsciously the message that is being sent is, you know, really lifting up beautiful examples of heterosexual love and physicality pas de deux, right? These are things that are being lifted up and celebrated as beautiful and worthy and exquisite. And at the same time on these ballet stages, we don't see a single example of LGBTQ embodiment or love, etc. right? So there's a very strong message being sent there. It's not, a, it's not a wrong message. It's not a bad message. It can be a beautiful show, but that's sending just as strong a message as my work, which is also embodying trans and queer experience. And thereby that message is political because it's always responding to a time period, a trend, or like you say, subconsciously making a statement and aligning with norms. So there are people who say that all art is political and dance is political by virtue of that. And so it sounds like that's what you're also positing. Absolutely. And listeners can't hear that I'm nodding my head vigorously. Is you? <laughs> Very vigorously. Yeah, I really, I really challenge all dance makers to take responsibility for their choices and to, to name it and not, we don't have to be apologetic wherever we come from identity wise. But if you're making work where you never have hired a trans dancer, where you've never had any physical embodiment of queer duet work or embodiment in your work, 
that's a fine choice to make, but just own it. Just say, you know, I'm interested in really exploring a heterosexual space or a, a cisgender space. C-I-S gender means somebody who's not trans, somebody whose identity aligns with what they were told with their birth certificate when they were born, right? So yeah, I do think all work is political, and I do think all work has a connection to justice and social justice. That being said, I also am someone that from a young age really was so just passionate about wanting to be of service and wanting to be a force for good and change in the world. So I'm very conscious about how I move through the world, how I create work, how I, my actions and values and my collaborative relationships and the kind of change that I can forge in the world. So for example, our tech writer, as I recommend that all non-trans choreographers also put this in their tech writer. We require all backstage dressing rooms and changing rooms to be made all gender during our run as well as the lobby so that folks who come, people may not know that a lot of trans and gender nonconforming folks are like, if there's no bathroom I can pee in legally or safely, I have to pee before I leave the house or not go to that three-hour show. My show is not three hours, by the way. <laughs> right? So these are things that have a really, really deep impact on people's choices just to go and use public spaces, right? Absolutely. So I'm very proud that I think there's signage backstage at the Joyce. The Joyce Theater, when they presented us last summer, and I became the first U.S. trans artist to be presented there, mm -hmm. they permanently converted their backstage dressing rooms and changing rooms to be all gender. And so companies can come in, and if they need to make men's rooms and women's rooms, they can, but they have to put those signs up or ask the theater to. Great. So starting from a neutral place and allowing people to custom, you know, build their backstage experience. And that's a great example of how you're working with an institution to change their culture and their policies. And that's also very important to social justice work in general. And what I also like about what you were talking about is what you don't see on the stage, behind the scenes, and the processes that go into a work are also very much um, constrained by the politics of the day, our political environment, the economics, especially that go into performance or don't go into performance. And this is all a part of the larger political backdrop. Also nodding my head vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of the LGBTQ community, all of the the political sort of uprising and that that's been going on for for generations, but now is really sort of making its way into the present social ethos. We understand that you are doing other efforts to bring in new audiences, specifically from the LGBTQ community. So this is something that that we love and we love to celebrate, but. Can you tell us a little bit about those, what you're doing to do that and what maybe your goals for bringing in those audiences are? Yeah, absolutely. So because I had such an early and have had such a long-standing experience of being so isolated in the field as a trans person, I've had a whole parallel process and career of also working really hard to invest in the creative expression and leadership of trans and gender nonconforming and queer artists in dance and to work toward forging lasting change in the field. So this is happening in many ways. The first is that when I moved to San Francisco almost 20 years ago, I arrived thinking I would find like all the hundreds of other transgender modern dancers and choreographers and I did not. There were so many barriers in our way to 
training, right? Using a bathroom in a dance studio, let alone find, you know, supportive schools that would support us to flourish in our authentic selves and bodies and our training. So I founded what I thought would be this one-time festival of trans and queer performance, the Fresh Meat Festival. And oh, you founded the Fresh Meat Festival. Yes, I did. Oh, congratulations. That's Thank very you. cool. Thank That's you. Very cool. Thank you. So we put it on as we thought this one-time festival. There was nothing like it. Nothing like it had happened in the country. It's hard to imagine now in the era of pose and so much amazing stuff happening in media and on stages. But 20 years ago, nobody would put trans artists on stage. And there was this amazing groundswell of all of this artistry. I was in the Bay Area watching theater, music, film, sculptors, you know, you name it. But nobody would touch us, literally. Nobody would fund our art at that time, and the media wouldn't cover it. So I put on, I thought, this one-time festival, and I brought together a group of artists and activists to put this on, and 19 years later, we're a thriving mid-sized arts organization that carries on year-round national arts programs. This June, third weekend, will be our 19th annual Fresh Meat Festival. We have audience wow. come from all across the country. We commission new work. We award grants, significant grants, to transgender and gender nonconforming and queer artists of color to create new work. And then we premiere that work at the festival. That's our Fresh Works program. We have a national education program where I and other teachers travel across the country and provide trans-supportive dance class series or dance workshops which is teaching with a specifically trans-friendly pedagogy. So no, you're not using binary gendered language or choreography and so on, and just like celebrating the bodies in the room, right? And it's also celebratory of not just dance, right? It's You, you mentioned earlier that you, you started out in theater, you're a writer, a poet. It celebrates all those different art forms too, Fresh Meat. Absolutely, yeah. The Fresh Meat Festival, because I'm a dance artist, it's about 40% dance and then about 30% theater and literary-based work, and then about 30% music. So, you know, we present everything from huge taiko ensembles to Vogue artists, hula, bachata, bomba, hip-hop. I mean, it's just, it's really an extraordinary, there's nothing like it in the country. A lot of folks in New York have talked to us over the years about wanting to produce, like, a, a Fresh Meat Festival New York version, which we hope could happen. But it, yeah, it's really, there is, it's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary, like heart bursting open, exquisite level of artistry experience. That's amazing. And it also sounds like you're also engaging the community surrounding Fresh Meat and the artist community. And, and generally speaking, how would you define, or I guess, how do you work with communities surrounding your work and other artists' work leading up to and also after performances? Yeah. I also love this question because I'm someone that grew up and came of age doing social justice work and community organizing. It's totally in my DNA. And I forget that when I talk often now as a leader in the field and talk to choreographers or artistic directors or executive directors who are like, we can't figure out how to quote, hate the word, diversify our audiences, or we can't figure out how to get butts in seats. Our audiences are dwindling. And we have the opposite problem. Like, Almost every ticketed event I've produced for the last 20 years has been sold out, often in advance sales alone. You know, when we tour, like we were in Whitewater, Wisconsin last fall, and we had a thousand people come from across the state and further to see us. But a big key to that is because in my and our organizational and our staff's DNA is community organizing. So it means the second you start thinking about a creative project or producing a festival, 
the first thing you think of is you build something that is deeply relevant to the communities you're working with. And you immediately begin working with leaders in community, community partner organizations. So, for example, when Sean Dorsey Dance Tours, we'll work in advance with a presenter to look at nonprofit community organizations in the city. Where's the trans youth support group, a local HIV AIDS nonprofit, or identifying like really key, like beloved local trans activist leaders. And so we work in advance to work with these folks as community partners. And they're getting local communities super excited about the performances and our free residency activities, our workshops, our community forums. And that's resulted in us having amazing houses, you know, whether it's in big cities like LA or wherever, or to like Sheboygan and Whitewater, Wisconsin, you know, mm -hmm. that we consistently have already this deep connection to community. We're not just landing in a place and hoping folks will show up, you know. That's excellent. I love that process of entering a community with your work. And I'm curious, have there been any surprises along the way, like when you're engaging leaders or organizations leading up to a performance? Has anyone said, actually, we want this? Or has there ever been any, I guess, I don't want to say disagreements, but where you've had to really like maybe change your approach that you initially thought would happen? Great question. And the listener would be sure the answer was yes, yeah. but I can say that after 20 years of doing this work in the U.S., as an openly, boldly, loudly trans and queer person bringing work that is unapologetically trans and queer, we have never encountered that. And we are working with theaters and presenters who, well, who almost exclusively have never presented a trans artist before and often don't present any kind of LGBTQ work. So we're not working with people who are like, oh, yeah, everything we do is LGBTQ. We know how to do that. And so many of their audiences also may be new. But I feel like the work is done with such forethought and care and love and authenticity that, I mean, I'm touching some wood nearby as I say this, but we've never had any... <laughs> Any of that, any of that pushback or it's negative response. It's built into your or, process, it sounds like. Where totally. the inclusivity also then develops the creative product yeah. as well. If anything, the surprises would be actually kind of from the opposite way. So I had to notice my surprise when we had a wonderful residency at the John Michael Kohler Arts Center. What year are we in? Just, just about a year ago, actually. February in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Had an amazing residency there. And... I had to check myself because I was so taken aback when they, part of our residency that week, was working with three different high school groups, a high school GSA, a high school dance class, and another high school group. And I was like, oh, are they going to be okay? It's like youth. And, you know, there's so much, there's so much transphobia and homophobia that a lot of haters have against LGBTQ folks and, you know, not wanting us to be around young people to influence them and make them that way. And I had so much internalized stuff. And had to stop and go, this is amazing. This organization gets the life-saving importance of bringing LGBTQ adults into these youth spaces, right? They know that 40% of trans people have tried to commit suicide at least once. And that's because we are given the constant message every day in this country that we're wrong or gross or, right, sick, something's wrong with us versus that we're beautiful, amazing People, I consider it a blessing, such a blessing to be trans. I give thanks every day. So they got, you know, just with the high rate of suicide and depression with LGBTQ youth, they knew that that was literally a life-saving choice. 
So that surprised me because I had never been to a high school GSA before. They didn't right. exist back in the day when I was in high school. <laughs> so that was amazing and surprising. Yeah, that's great. That's incredible. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about Sean's inclusivity, inclusive dance classes. That's a lot of inclusivity I just said right there, which <laughs> we're all about inclusivity here. Love it. And uh, about Boys in Trouble. So we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Hey, Michael Mahaney from the Potterdoo Podcast. Do you crave the latest breaking dance news? Or maybe you want that behind-the-scenes story of Broadway's biggest dance hit or the insider scoop from television's most watched dance competitions. Well, the answer is simple. Dance Network. For the price of your daily coffee, you can have complete access to the best dance news reporting, insider stories, original series, interviews, and more. For $6.99 a month, you get exclusive content, live stream competitions, the latest from the commercial dance world where you'll hear from the casts of Dancing with the Stars and So You Think You Can Dance. And you get behind-the-scenes coverage from the best-sourced dance news reporters in the business. On top of it all, though, your subscription helps Dance Network keep creating the best dance content available anywhere. So pick up your subscription today. Available at dancenetwork.tv and now in the Roku Channel Store. Welcome back to the Pot to Do podcast. Sean, your dance workshops are known for being super inclusive, right? And, and that's a big part of what Sean Dorsey Dance does, what, what you work for. So how do you create such a broadly inclusive class, specifically for our listeners? And then how do you go about including folks who are attending who might be at different levels of their dance journey? Yes. Also love this question. Thank you. So we do, as a touring company, we, of course, do the standard master classes and advanced intermediate classes, which we also love, teaching rap or technique, etc. But also, my deep passion is to create opportunities for folks who haven't previously felt welcomed into a dance space, who haven't felt safe enough, who may be self-conscious or have body issues, whatever, to give these folks a welcoming and loving opportunity to come and experience dance and embodiment. Almost always when we tour, we offer at least one free, and here's what we call it, terrified beginners welcome, exclamation mark, <laughs> trans-friendly dance workshop with Sean Dorsey Dance or something like that. So we want to get folks' attention because, um, especially when it's specifically trans-friendly, gender non-conforming friendly, immediately anybody under that umbrella is like, well, that does not apply to me because I've never been. And when we do participant surveys, like over 99% of those folks who come have never been to a dance workshop before because those studios aren't safe or welcoming for trans and gender nonconforming folks or GNC, gender nonconforming. And we have a really intentional and deliberate way that we talk about the workshop and a page-long list of frequently asked questions. So when we talk about the workshop and describe it, we specifically talk about it being for the like ultra-terrified beginners welcome, this is super fun and loving and friendly, and talk about it being, you know, for all bodies and all genders and all levels of experience. We'll make sure we always offer this space in an ADA accessible studio and room, bathroom and changing room, and welcome folks who are wheelchair users, use crutches, canes. And then we'll have, we have this page-long list of frequently asked questions we always provide to our presenters or, or to dance studios. Things that a lot of folks may not know, like, what do I wear to a dance class? Will we be barefoot? In these classes, we mostly always say, you know, we put a question, will there be touch involved? Because a lot of dance, there's partnering. 
And so in these workshops, we say there won't be any touch because a lot of people, you know, we make it welcoming to people who are big, who are beautiful, who are fat, who are big bodied. And it's like, come in with your beautiful big body and you do not have to worry about somebody touching you. Trans person, you don't have to worry about somebody maybe brushing up against your chest or parts you're going to feel self-conscious about. We make sure to set up in advance and say in this list of questions, there'll be an all-gender bathroom, there'll be private changing areas. You know, question, no, really, I'm super terrified and I'm totally out of shape. Yeah, this is really for you. You can sit down anytime. You can watch from the side and just cheer. You know, like it's super, it's just like, yeah, it's like super, super. It's like the opposite of what we all experience when we go to <laughs> right <laughs> class, right? Like the like competitive. Like I'm picturing like, you know, my my uh, I have such a deep love of fame. The original movie, of course, <laughs> old. Um, but you know, Debbie <laughs> Allen, you want fame, it takes right. blood, sweat. Um, <laughs> the opposite of that, right? So it's like we start with an opening circle. If we feel comfortable speaking out loud, we share our names and our pronouns and anything that we can articulate in terms of access needs. So if someone's like, you know, I'm, I'm disabled and I, I can't do a forward bend or I might need to sit on the side here and there. It's like, you're so welcome to do that. And we'll always offer um, adaptive options for folks. So it's just meant to be the most like affirming, celebratory, fun. And it is amazing to be in a room full of people who have never, often never taken a workshop. And then you have, you know, professional dancers also showing up, right? And the room goes from people being like, I'm terrified I'm terrified I'm frozen to my body so many trans folks you know like walk around with their chest constricted and hunched over self-conscious and watching everyone's chests bloom open and this pride and smiles come over everyone's faces and the like the like woohoos and celebration in the room and people to get that experience of like taking a full breath in their body and you know this country does so much to shut trans people down in our bodies and we you know we walk the street in fear. We access public transportation and TSA and airports in fear. And to be in a space that's like, you're amazing. Your body's amazing. You know, the world does not get it yet and it's not ready for you yet, maybe. Just to love each other up and, and celebrate each other. It sounds like the most incredibly celebratory, welcoming space. I, I want to ask you a little bit then about your professional company. So you do obviously work with professional dancers. So... In a world that celebrates inclusivity and, and welcoming all different types, how do you then go about finding your company dancers and to sort of keep that idea alive within what you're doing in your professional work? So um, all of my dancers are in the company by invitation. I, to date, haven't held auditions. I've been really specific in curating my company, I guess you would say. And also, we are a family. Brian has been dancing for me for 13 years, Noel 11, Arveon like seven, I think, and Will for four. So this is a family with like very, very deep trust built. And we get a lot of feedback that that's really palpable on stage. There's such a level of deep trust and familiarity that allows us to do things physically and emotionally on stage. Because there are very specific things that I'm looking for. Obviously, I'm looking for, you know, exquisite technique and physicality. But the work also really demands a very, this is going to sound like a contradiction in terms, but like theatrical authenticity. <laughs> so That's no, I think right? that's, you know a, I that's mean? a really, that's ideally what I think everybody is shooting for. <laughs> right, okay, so you know what I mean, right? So, because again, so much 
we are trained in modern dance to have that. And I know the listeners can't see this, but they can imagine that like glazed overlook that modern dancers are supposed to adopt when we get on stage, right? I will cut off my humanity and I will become a gorgeous, right? Like executor of movement. And in my work, I am very specific about I focus on always being present as a recognizable human being in the work. And Boys in Trouble specifically draws a lot on our individual experiences in the world. But for me, and when I teach rep classes or teach at colleges, I'll talk a lot about our faces and our breath and our spine and our neck and being authentically present in work. And so I had to talk a lot with students when I teach about their eyes and about their eyes being alive and how I actually choreograph the distance of my gaze a lot. Like we're really specific about, you know, so our gaze is not like cut off in that glazed modern dance thing. It's really specific in, at all times, like where that is and the depth of field and emotion. And now I forget the question. I just went somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> no, we were, you were talking about your company dancers and how you, how you bring them on, but it, it's, it's an incredible family and how you sort of share your ideas of working with everybody. But Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like that family and um, humanity that you work with behind the scenes, you're really bringing on stage, which that's really the type of work that I'm most interested in seeing. Yeah, it, um, me too. <laughs> me three. And also what I'm so blessed by working with my dancers who are collaborators is that they bring also such an incredibly diverse spectrum of dance trainings and backgrounds. And so all of those movement vocabularies get to enrich my work. So, you know, having training in everything from, of course, ballet and modern to tap and Afro-contemporary and like so much, there's just so much available in their bodies as well as in their minds. You know, we've, we have an extremely rigorous work ethic in the company. Uh, we work very hard and I'm definitely very precise in terms of what I want and wanting to clean it. But we laugh so much <laughs> in rehearsal <laughs> and we've built this level of trust. So there's such a generosity of people being willing to offer you know, risky physical contributions, not meaning like hanging from the rafters, meaning emotionally risky, yeah. right? And also offering their own stories, like for Boys in Trouble is rooted so much in our own experiences of masculinity and intersectional questions of masculinity and race and gender in America. Great. Talk more about how you've brought these themes to the stage with your latest work, Boys in Trouble. Yeah. So um, even before the last election, I was feeling drawn to... I feel like there was finally this term being used in popular culture, toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. was being was being talked about more and is more, you know, even more today than a few years ago when I started doing research and writing around the project. And also what was missing from that, like even in the recent Good Morning America controversy. Mm -hmm. you know, Definitely you can call right? it a controversy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that when there was feedback from the dance community about that and pushback and a celebration of, you know, the breadth of masculinity and how amazing it is to to embody ballet what was missing from that was the conversation being enriched by trans voices right who like i have such an interesting perspective on masculinity i grew up being totally female socialized right grew up being treated like a girl and you know being the one on the bus who had to like squeeze my knees together being next to like the man spreading right so i had this i had this internal experience of living with, around the patriarchy, and now I'm read as this white guy, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's a whole sidebar story. 
Will you please repeat your last question because I went on a sidebar. Oh, um, <clears throat> so you had mentioned some themes that you're working with masculinity in Boys in Trouble. And yes. how are you bringing some of these themes to light? Yes. Things became even more urgent for me after the, the last election. Thinking about toxic masculinity and gender and the ways that toxic masculinity harms all of us. It harms people who live in masculinity and it harms people who live next to or around masculinity, right? It hurts all of us. And all the things I was thinking about, talking about whiteness and white supremacy has been urgent since this country was founded upon invasion and genocide. So it's always been of urgent importance and it felt especially important for me as a white person right now in America to talk about that, to put it on stage. And that's we have a section called, let's talk about whiteness. And things white people say, <laughs> which has that, you know, which um, which brings something that, you know, there's so much trauma and harm and discomfort and so many feelings that, you know, all of us, white people, people of color, black folks, indigenous folks, we all have an experience of white supremacy and whiteness and putting it on stage and talking about it and being able to also laugh a little bit, being able to just laugh a little bit about whiteness and things white people say as kind of an offering. I feel like comedy is a really great way to kind of go right to the heart and bypass people's heads. So I, I haven't used comedy a lot in my last couple of works, which were rooted in talking about the early AIDS epidemic and things that were a little heavier. But I enjoy comedy very much as a way to bring feelings and information to folks in a way that we don't we just bypass the brain and, you know, cerebral cortex. We just go right to the heart. And so, yeah, so toxic masculinity, embodiment, body shame, violence, posturing. We unpack macho and even looking at kind of like trans peer pressure. Like as a trans person, I'm expected to deliver this narrative like, well, as a kid, I only like playing with G.I. Joe. So I that's why I'm trans. And it's like, I love my Barbies, you know, I also love my bike, but like, I totally love my Barbies and like, you know, playing with my hair. So, but it's like, well, I can't be a trans guy. Right. So just, just trying to like complicate the narrative a little bit. And that's true for so many trans folks, but there's like, there's things we're allowed to talk about and things we're not allowed to talk about. So it was wanting to kind of lovingly smash some of those topics open a little bit, but with so much heart and love and a good sprinkling of comedy. I love that, especially when you're talking about something like whiteness, to be direct, but in a way that people want to engage. That is definitely an art, and it sounds like you're finding a nice balance using comedy to do that. Yeah, we um, we had a lot of conversations in the studio, and for the the part of the script where we actually list a few things that things white people say we had like three pages of, <laughs> of juicy ones to pick from oh man but it's just it's so important it's always been important and so I really invite white listeners at this moment in America it's so important for us to you know just sit with and talk with each other and get kind of over our what's been taught to us is to be really defensive about the term white people or whiteness and it's so loaded and to be like oh I'm a white person and no, whether I want it or not, whether I feel bad or not, my passage through America is so lubricated because of my whiteness. No matter how great my politics are, no matter how much I want to eliminate white supremacy and smash it, and just to kind of not 
we get we can get stuck in the guilt and the but I'm a good person, which we also reference in the show in a very humorous way, and to get into action because any any day that I'm not working against white supremacy, I'm actually I'm actually allowing it to continue, you know, and I think that can be a very it does not have to be a shaming shut down it's like it can be a really joyful responsibility and commitment it's like i'm committed every day to talking to other white folks about white supremacy and what we can do and i'm going to totally get it wrong sometimes and i'm just always working on going okay i'm going to get it wrong and i'm still a good person and i'm going to totally do racist stuff sometimes as we all will as white people and how can we just keep you know like i say like okay white folks let's like in our privacy of our bedroom, just say the term white people 10,000 times until you stop like having a rash whenever you hear it and getting defensive. <laughs> and I, it sounds like you're also tapping into this idea of self-compassion because when we talk about any of these topics, it's totally fine to admit like, oh yeah, maybe a year ago I had an idea about this that I no longer accept. And that self-compassion is so important and so often sometimes we can get in these like, social justice warrior battles like I'm more woke than you no I'm more woke than you and it's like that's really not the point and I think it gets it escalates so much in that direction that we all need a little compassion towards ourselves and once you have that self-compassion then you're able to be compassionate towards other people like I mean I'm not here to change your view but I think we should just talk about how we think about things I I'm again not nodding my head vigorously I am I so wholeheartedly agree. And I think coming from that heart-centered place and thinking of it as a practice, so it's not a destination. It's like, I can always improve. I can always learn. And like language is going to be different about six days from now than it was six days ago. And so I'm going to hopefully be keeping up with that. And just, we're not the same person we were a year ago. And I think also holding compassion that not everyone has had the privilege to be exposed to information. Like I've been really lucky to be part of communities and friendships and cities where I got to learn and be exposed to information. So often with people, it's not because there's a, a malintent. Sometimes there is, but often it's just not having had access to the information. And so I want to give folks the benefit of the doubt and trust that when I provide information, and that's what you know, that's what my path has shown me to be true. Yeah, it seems like that's what you're using your platform to do is to is to share that and and help rid that ignorance. I know you have to go. Do we have time for one last quick question? Yeah. Before we go, I just wanted to ask you, you work so inclusively and collaboratively. The show itself, this particular piece, Boys in Trouble, I'm just curious how much of it was your personal vision and how much of it you took in a collaborative sense with your company dancers. Mm. So my process is a little different every show, but generally... I have spent as much as up to a year before I arrive in the studio with my dancers. I've spent a year filling, you know, 20 notebooks with writing and working with my composers on seeds of idea for new music, reading and reading and thinking and moving myself, being sparked for, you know, visual ideas, lighting, costume, movement, vocabulary. And so I'll often have drafts of section of a score or some things created before I get in the studio. So what we start playing with in the sandbox is rooted in some of those themes, particular piece of music, something I've written and narrated and recorded over a piece of music for the score. But then we spend a lot of time in the studio, again, sharing our personal reactions to the work, 
with Boys in Trouble, we would have in some of these cases, you know, I, I would give a writing exercise. So my dancer, Noel, does a gorgeous point solo during the show. And before that, he's in the recorded score reads a short monologue that was based on a writing exercise we did that talked about an experience he had in his childhood. And kind of the first time he remembers, I asked my dancers to write about the first time they remember feeling body shame, like if they could remember the first time they felt that. Mm -hmm. And I generally choreographically, a lot of my work, sometimes I'll just, I'll, I'll see something and I'll want it and I'll describe it or I'll do it and teach it. More of the time, I will give tasks like, okay, I see this is going to be a trio and I feel like it, it has some of this and has some of this and maybe it starts in this, wait, like this shape and can you go here? Okay, and then can you play with that idea for five minutes, for 20 minutes and then I'll come back and look at it and, you know, cut and copy and paste and quilt and so on. So everyone's movement invention is in the work. You know, everyone's personality and character is in the work. Like when I... Um, I design the whole sound score, I write the whole score and work with a sound engineer and designer and my composers in the studio. But when I write the script, which is like 42 pages long in the case of this show, I'll often also write lines that I'm like, oh, this is totally something Brian would say, you know? And then sometimes in the studio, then Brian will like say a line a bit of a different way. And I'm like, oh no, that's what I want. That's totally what you would say in that moment. So, you know, in real time, we'll adapt stuff. So everyone's movement, vocabulary, gesture, partnering, breath, characters, dialogue is goes into the process, but I'm ultimately crafting and directing and choreographing the work. But it's so much all of our bones and, and guts. That's so cool. Really cool. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us today. We know you got a million things going on here in town. <laughs> congratulations on Boys in Trouble and congratulations on everything. Thank you for sharing your voice with us today and our listeners. And thank you for using your platform to celebrate love and inclusivity and and everybody so again thank you so much for taking the time to be with us thank you both so much for the wonderful conversation and if folks want to learn where we're touring next they can go to seandorseydance.com that's s-e-a-n seandorseydance.com and we're seandorseydance.com on all the social media platforms as well thank you so much for having me thank you thank you